0: Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And, well, first of all, it's uh, Tuesday, November 18th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and today's topic is the top 100 most prescribed drugs. Who wants to know? Who cares? And what does it mean? Can we figure anything out from these lists? So in addition to talking about the drugs on these lists and their relationships to each other, and uh, to your life, I'll also be talking about um, natural alternatives. And these drugs, make no mistake about it, are the top killers. And when you go into a hospital or when you're under the care of a doctor, and you drop dead, the cause of death is, is the physical manifestation. The heart stopped, all right, call it a heart attack. Breathing stopped, all right, call it respiratory failure. You bleed to death from your intestines, call it intestinal hemorrhage. So what that means then is the underlying cause, which may be one of the prescription drugs that you're taking, is, is never mentioned that's never listed as a cause of death. Now, the other complication, of course, is the same person, generally, who prescribed the drug, which caused the death, is also the same person who completes the death certificate. And so the person who completes the death certificate is not going to write down, I am guilty, I did it, I murdered the patient. No, 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 that's not the way it works. So there's an inherent conflict of interest just in the method used to determine cause of death, and uh, this conflict of interest makes sure that the U.S. vital statistics reads uh, cancer, heart attack, and all these um, micro causes of death rather than uh, a con- underlying cause like um, hospital acquired infection or Properly proper prescription of XYZ drug. So, but we can take a look at these uh, lists of popular drugs. And for the sake of uh, interest and in kind of a better picture for you, we're looking at 2003, 2010, and of course 2013 to 2014. And uh, what made me talk about this today is I received an email. I'm on the doctor's list, you know, letting people know uh letting doctors know, all about drugs and what they ought, uh, ought to be doing. So we got this email, 100 most prescribed, best-selling, branded drugs through September. And so it goes on to talk about the cholesterol-lowering drug, rivustatin, which is Crestor, is numero uno, the most prescribed drug in the United States, and the antipsychotic medication, Abilify is the best-selling drug according to recent data. Uh, when I say best-selling, uh, best-selling in the psychiatric category, it's actually down here around number 12 in terms of the, the numbers. And so the remaining top 10 prescribed drugs for the period were, uh, and they, they list the top most prescribed drugs. And then there's the top-selling drugs. And so the top selling drugs, there is a little bit of distortion, actually a lot of distortion. And the distortion is because of the price of the drug. So very highly priced drugs that might not sell as well will be listed higher on the um, top sales list. So um, it's uh, shocking that, um, well, first of all, the two lists are different. But they have to be tracked because different groups use the list differently. So let's take a look at the top-selling drugs because that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Uh, If it doesn't sell, then, you know, it's like, what's the point? So let's take a look at the top-selling drugs. Now, as a doctor, I'll tell you how doctors look at these lists. (laughs) Um, The... When, as doctors, you look at the top 10 to 20 drugs. And as a doctor, you want to be sure that you're prescribing some of those drugs. Otherwise, you're kind of not really in the game and maybe you're doing something wrong because, after all, as a doctor, you have to stick to the standard of care. What's the standard of care? That's what everyone else is doing. It's the standard whereby other people are sticking to. And so you have to see, so you see what everyone else is doing, what everyone else is prescribing. And if you find that you're not prescribing any of those, then you're just plain out of step. And obviously, you are not adhering to the standard of care. Because the standard of care is what everyone else does. It's like a teenager deciding what length her skirt should be. She's going to look for the standard of skirt length. What are her friends wearing? What's everybody else wearing? And it's shocking that this is what medicine has uh, been regulated into. So you can imagine, when I was in medical practice, I would look at this list of top 100 drugs and say, "Huh, ooh. So let's take a look at this list and see what we can figure. Uh, I'd like to remind listeners that um, modern medicine's claim to fame is that it uses objective criteria, objective tests, that would be blood tests, blood pressure, um, biopsies, scientific method to guide all of its actions. And that's how you know what your doctor is doing is right for you. In fact, many people say, doctor, I want to test. So we're going to look at these top-selling drugs and see if we can't get some kind of handle on the scientific nature of the practice of medicine. I think that's it's important. All right, top seller is Crestor. What could possibly be more specific? scientific than Prestor, right? Because, of course, it's a cholesterol-lowering medication and everybody knows that you do a blood test for cholesterol. So you would think that prescribing cholesterol-lowering drugs would be a scientific issue. Well, it is no longer the case. Now, the new guidelines, which are now a year old, so if you're on cholesterol medication, guidelines as of the last uh, 12 months for sure indicate that your doctor does not need to necessarily lower your drug to a particular level in order to properly treat your cholesterol. So physicians are no... Here's the guidelines from Heartwire. This is, uh, you know, this is what the medical doctor website is using. Physicians are no longer asked to treat patients with cardiovascular disease to less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, or the optional goal of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. So doctors no longer have numerical targets to hit for the prescription of cholesterol medications. What does that mean? Well, that means that whether you get a cholesterol medication and how much you get is no longer an objective practice. In other words, it is no longer um, guided by objective lab tests. So let's um, take another look go closer at these guidelines. So instead, the new guidelines identify four groups of primary and secondary prevention patients in whom physicians should focus their efforts to reduce cardiovascular disease events. Depending on the type of patient, physicians should choose the appropriate intensity of statin therapy to achieve relative reductions in LDL cholesterol. Briefly, the clinical guidelines currently state that for those with, guys, you try and follow this, and I'm going to tell you right now, you're probably not any less intelligent than the average doctor. So you see if you can follow this, and you tell me if you can discern objective criteria. So let's go. Briefly, the clinical guidelines currently state that for those in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, high-intensity statin therapy, such as Crestor, made by AstraZeneca, 20 to 40 milligrams, or atorvastatin 80 milligrams, should, notice they don't use, give the name or the manufacturer for number two, should be used to achieve at least a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol unless, unless, as an exception, otherwise contraindicated, or, another exception, when statin-associated adverse events are present. So, in other words, side effects. And by the way, one-third of all people taking cholesterol medications experience a side effect every year. In that case, doctors should use a moderate-intensity statin. Similarly, for those with LDL cholesterol levels greater than 190, a high intensity statin should be used with the goal of achieving at least a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol levels. Okay. For those with diabetes, age 40 to 75 years of age, a moderate intensity statin defined as a drug that lowers cholesterol 30 to 49% should be used. Whereas a high intensity statin is a reasonable choice if the patient also has a 10 year risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease exceeding 7.5%. Okay. So in other words, if I as a doctor can take a look at you and predict with certainty that in the next 10 years you have a cardiovascular disease risk exceeding 7.5%, well then, I should use a moderate intensity statin, okay? Interesting. So of course, you can imagine as a doctor, I go into the exam room and say, hey, you qualify for a moderate intensity statin. And the patient, being American, of course, more is better, bigger is better. What? Why can't I get the high intensity statin? Isn't my health important enough? So let's uh, see what they say. Well, first of all, you need to know that anyone's chances of dying in any given year is 0.8% in the United States. 0.8%. 0.8% times 10 is 8%. So anyone listening to this show, sitting in the United States has literally eight percent chance of dying in the next 10 years. It's just the way it is statistically speaking, if you're in the United States. And so what they're saying then is if a person's chances of dying of heart disease is more than 7.5 percent is equal to or more than 7.5 percent, we just say more than 7.5 percent. So 7.6 percent, then they should get this drug. But wait, but wait. A healthy person has a chance of dying in the next 10 years of 8 percent. So we're going to classify them as diseased and in need of a drug if their chance of dying in the next 10 years is 7.5 percent. So in other words, what we have just done is we have taken healthy individuals, and a blank, and a blink, blink uh, did you hear me blink? That was a blank you heard classified them as ill and in need of a cholesterol-lowering medication. This is very interesting. And I'm reading this straight from the guidelines. This is <laughs> no imagination here. Now, most doctors haven't taken the trouble to calculate the growth risk of death for Americans. What is the chance of dying? Just when you wake up in the morning, it's a wonderful day, What are your chances of being dead 10 years from now? Answer? If you're sitting in the United States, it's 8%. That's just gross average. So what they're saying then, if a person's chances of dying are less than average, they still need this drug. Awesome. So for the individual age 40 to 75 years without cardiovascular disease or diabetes, but, if has a 10-year risk of clinical events greater than 7.5% and an LDL cholesterol level anywhere from 70 to 189, the panel recommends treatment with a moderate or high-intensity statin. Okay. Now, notice the panel recommends basically a high-intensity statin for most cases and only recommends Crestor by name. Is it any wonder that Crestor is the number one selling drug? Right. right? It's a drug that, by these guidelines, by their own admission, is defined as being appropriate and medically necessary for healthy people who have no disease. This is impressive. This is impressive. Now, so let's look back. So our number one drug is Crestor. Now one thing I didn't read, I just got to read this to you, I think you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> all right, so as you might guess, not all doctors agree with these cholesterol guidelines. And so this article um, has a Dr. Robinson defending these very big, very confusing, and quite expansive guidelines that obviously favor Crestor, because it's the only cholesterol-lowering drug that it um, mentioned by name. Now, this is this is the medscape.com website. Their information, you know, just my, my analysis. And so, Robinson says that when writing the guidelines, the committee was aware of patients on suboptimal therapy. Data has shown that even when the cholesterol targets existed, half of the patients aren't even taking a statin at one year, and just 15% are taking a high-intensity statin. That's what you get when you're treating targets, she said. We think more focus should be on the intensity on maximizing the statin dose, which means pumping more drugs into people. One of the elephants in the room was a trial study of 18,000 patients with a baseline cholesterol level less than 100. In that trial, researchers are testing whether the addition of a drug, will further reduce LDL cholesterol beyond what is capable of simvastatin, results in significant reduction in cardiovascular events. So gonna, they're doing another um, test, and it has late-breaking uh, whatever. Now, what they said in doing this, um, in coming up with these guidelines, was they worked very hard to look at all the available data and to remove bias, remove bias. And another doctor, Dr. Brown, who disagreed with these guidelines said that the art of medicine requires conversations with the patient and that the LDL cholesterol target provided a means to track patient progress. In other words, a pretense for this conversation. After the patient has been treated, they want to know whether the treatment is working, said Brown, and without a goal... Without a number, what do you tell them? So, the whole purpose of these tests, the whole purpose of these numbers, is to seduce the patient into believing the drugs are medically necessary. And in this case, what they're saying is, the numbers aren't getting enough people to take these drugs. So, let's just... uh, shoot for a kind of a gestalt thing and let's classify more than half of all adults as diseased. and needing this drug and oh by the way Crestor is the only drug we're going to recommend by name and so don't we see Crestor is the uh, number one prescribed drug in 2013-2014. And that's with over 22 million people uh, taking it. Actually, let me flip back to that page. Okay, so Crestor, yes, 22 million people taking Crestor. 22.2 22, uh, 2 million, but that's a decimal point. So that's the number one drug. So number one drug, Crestor, is a drug that's prescribed based on gestalt, And um, healthy people are classified as needing it. What about drug number two? Drug number two is Synthroid. He said, Dr. Daniel, please, Synthroid? Well, Synthroid is a thyroid supplement. And we give Synthroid to people who have deficient thyroids as measured by blood tests. That sounds pretty good to me. In fact, I'm along with that. So number two drug has an objective measure, call it laboratory test. keep it real simple, TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and um, T3, sometimes T4. But what else do we know about Synthroid? Well, Synthroid treats underactive thyroid. And there are drugs that cause underactive thyroid. A couple of drugs, a few, let's just talk about three of them. Advir Discus, this is an asthma drug, Seroquel, psychiatric drug, and effects are another psychiatric drug. These drugs in 2010, Advir Discus, which causes underactive thyroid, happened to be the number four prescribed drug. What do you think might happen if you take the number four prescribed drug for a year? You might get some side effects from it. In other words, an underactive thyroid. So that's Advir Discus. What else do we know? Well, Seroquel, the number eight prescribed drug in 2010. This is a psychiatric drug. Causes side thyroid. Shocking, isn't it? Now, Seroquel sold, Jesus Christ, $3 billion, $3.2 billion in sales. I have to tell you, uh, I trained as a resident in 1980 year of our Lord, 1984. In 1984 cross my heart and hope to die fewer than 1% of people were on Seroquel and there is such an awful stigma attached to taking Seroquel that if if a person even needed it, you couldn't hardly get them to take it. But now uh, Seroquel has been repurposed, rebranded and it's Something, of course, that everybody needs. To say nothing of the fact that um, the definition of psychiatric disease requiring Seroquel has been redefined, 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 and expanded. So, what we have then is we have Seroquel, a psychiatric drug for disease which has no objective measure or marker. The number 8 drug in 2010, feeding into the cause of the number 2 drug in 2013. What else do we have? Well, we have Effexor, the number 19 drug. Effexor, the number 19 drug in 2010, also causes underactive thyroid. Again, you have the number 19 drug, the number 8 drug, and the number 4 drug in 2010, causing a side effect, which is, of course, then treated by the number 2 drug, in 2013-2014. So you can see here that each year lays the foundation for the next year's prescription. Very, very interesting. And so the number two drug is Synthroid. So Synthroid, while it does have objective tests that do measure is it there, is it not, is it there, is it not, it's clearly caused by the top-selling drugs of the prior year. What else do we know about Synthroid? Well, Synthroid is also used to treat something called subclinical underactive thyroid. What does that mean? That means the person has feels fine, life is going well, they have an elevated TSH, that means thyroid-stimulating hormone, and a normal T3, T4. What does that mean? T3 and T4 is the active hormones that regulate your life, the active thyroid hormones that regulate your life. The TSH is your pituitary gland saying, hey, make more thyroid, make more thyroid hormone, we need more. Okay, so the we need more message is very loud, let's say the test is high, but the actual mouth being made is normal. So this person is healthy, This person is functioning, this person feels fine, but on a screening test or whatever, the thyroid test is elevated. You might be interested to know that 10% of adults fall into this category. There's about 200 million adults in America, 10%, who who feel just fine and have a normal amount of active thyroid hormone are classified as... um, asymptomatic um, thyroid or subacute thyroid. And so what happens to these people? Well, if you read the guidelines, guidelines say, well, even though these people are not sick, even though these people do not have a disease, they need to be treated because they may become sick. Okay, they may become sick. And I'll probably of you are, who are listening to this program feel perfectly healthy. I'm sure somebody does. And so... Um, you probably feel pretty certain that sometime in the next 20 years you're going to become sick. I, I guarantee it. Sometime in the next 20 years you're going to become sick. Maybe it'll be a headache. Maybe it'll be a cold. Maybe arthritis. Who knows? The next 20 years you will become sick with something. So, should I put you on thyroid medicine because you might become sick? Well, you might become sick with something else besides thyroid. Who knows? But this is the rationale. So crisis the standard of care, literally 10% of Americans should be on thyroid medicine. And dun, 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 22 million Americans are. And uh, the doctors are adhering to the standard of care, I see. And they are at least prescribing this medicine for all those healthy folks out there who have subclinical underactive thyroid. Amazing. Okay, so our next drug is Nexium. Wow. Now, I'm pretty old. I'm near a senior citizen. So Nexium, way back uh, in the day, long time ago, was known as little purple pill. And um, the thing about Nexium is that uh, Nexium totally wipes out the ability of your stomach to make acid. Now Nexium is a class of drugs called PPIs or proton pump inhibitors. Now proton pump inhibitor, it blocks a proton pump. What's a proton pump? A proton pump is um, a cell in your stomach that takes in water and pumps out acid, H plus It's a proton. So it pumps out this acid and it puts this acid in your stomach so it can digest your food. Now, this acid also kills parasites, namely worms, viruses, bacteria, and prevents you from getting parasitic infestations, which often cause crippling arthritis, fevers, and you know all kinds of just really unbearable things. So Nexium shuts down that acid pump you can no longer digest your food and you can no longer protect yourself from these numerous parasites. This is the number three selling drug in America as we speak. So in other words, I'll bet there's at least one listener taking this one. So Nexium is a drug that's prescribed for basically indigestion. In the old days, you would have taken some Tums and that would be pretty much the end of it. But with Nexium, um, it shuts down your acid production very completely. It is really profound. And these proton pump inhibitors, when they were introduced in the 80s, um, they were hailed as a major advance. The problem, though, was in clinical trials with rats, they were found to cause cancer in rats within eight weeks. And so they would say, well, you know, rat life and cancer, rat life and people life. I mean, eight year, eight weeks in a rat's life is like so many years in people's lives. Let me find someone's going to take these drugs long term. Huh. These drugs are very, very addictive. Very hard to get off this next year. Because um, a lot of times people will take it. They'll feel better. They stop taking it and they feel even worse than they did before they even took it for the first time. Very, very difficult to stop. So... Just by the way, since we only have a one-hour show here, I might as well go through the alternative. So, Crestor cholesterol-lowering medication, what's the alternative? The alternative is just to really go have a good life. Um, The side effects of uh, cholesterol-lowering medications are extremely, extremely high. The benefit, uh, very low. They're now finding that um, cholesterol-lowering medications cause uh, strokes, that they cause diabetes, and they're really uh, not a good investment in your health. So for cholesterol-lowering medications, the thing is just, uh, just say no. Uh, just like Nancy Reagan says to drugs, just say no. The Synthroid, you might want to, and I would suggest you check your lab test. If all you have is an elevated TSH, then there is no reason to take the Synthroid. The synthroid cannot improve your uh, clinical outcome. There have been um, studies done that people who have subclinical uh, high-pulse thyroidism do have an increased chance of later going on to have an undirected thyroid, then obviously just treat it when it happens and if it happens, because obviously it doesn't always happen. They have a chance of it happening. So that's the right thing. So check, and if you don't need it, you don't need it. Now, the other thing is there there is emerging knowledge in the natural uh, health field where Synthroid is not forever. It's not uh, necessary to take it for a lifetime. So, first thing is check. And if your reason for taking Synthroid is that your TSH was elevated and your T3 and T4 are normal, then according to clinical guidelines, you don't have a disease. You have a chance of getting a disease. So it makes no sense to treat a disease before you get it. You know, if, if you don't have it, then you don't have it. You're healthy. So enjoy your good health. I think if, we, um, if people took that posture, there might not be 22 million prescriptions a year for a centroid. All right. And Nexium. People you say, oh, well, I have indigestion. What am I going to do? The first thing you do is to change your diet. Most people have indigestion. They know exactly what they ate that caused the indigestion. And no, it's not wimpy, uh, it's not being sissy to just say, hey, you know what, I ate this food and it made me sick, so I'm going to stop eating it. It's just that complicated. So that's the first step. What if that doesn't do it? Um, Indigestion, so to speak, appears to be caused by uh, the parasites. And so obviously taking something like Nexium, which allows the parasites to proceed throughout the rest of your body, probably not the way to go. Um, so, I would say take an anti-parasite um, the anti parasite posture. The uh, medical doctors have triple antibiotics for you if you want to go that route. Um, that's not something I would do. But the thing to do is, is attack the problem. Personally, my preference is uh, turpentine. But again, this is not the practice of medicine. I don't have a license. And so, you know, this is. Definitely, information that you ingest and follow at your own risk. Okay, so Nexium. Then there's Ventilin. Ventilin inhaler is a treatment for asthma. The thing to understand and know about asthma is prior to the use of medications, asthma was a non-deadly disease. No one died of of uh, asthma before uh, people started taking um, drugs for it. So, what is, uh, what is asthma? Well, asthma is considered to be uh, narrowing of the airways, air trapping, and uh, difficulty with uh, breathing, basically. Well... To be more precise about it, is what is it that causes the need to prevent one? It's exposure to either dietary or environmental chemicals poisons that cause the breathing difficulties. Again, take a critical look at your um, diet. Really take a look at it and be open to stopping the things that make asthma worse. Chief um, aggravator is dairy. Now, really phenomenal marketing. I mean, I'm impressed with the marketing. Uh, where they, um, Wherever you look in the media, the ability to drink milk is portrayed as a superior uh, trait and that African Americans are deficient and inferior because they cannot digest milk. And so, of course, they need to take an enzyme with their milk so that they can be... Uh, as good as other people and digest milk. Well, unfortunately, what I fail to tell other people or everyone is that even though you may drink milk and it may go down okay, it can then cause asthma. So this is not only milk, but the cheese and your favorite pizza and so on. So um, dairy products are a major issue. Now, again, with the marketing, you have one group feeling superior because they're consuming dairy and the other group feeling inferior and wanting to consume dairy to prove that they're equal. And so you change everyone's focus away from the fact that it's not even good anyway. So major marketing, marketing distraction. So Somebody in the chat room wants to know, does it matter if it's raw milk? I really don't know. Uh, I can't tell you about that. Um, All I can say is, you know, I had a family in my practice that had a raw milk farm. Yes, in New York, they had a raw milk farm. And their only affliction appeared to be, oh, not to mention it, obesity, allergies, and um, skin rashes. So I guess raw milk does cause um, these allergy problems. So I guess raw milk would be would definitely be on the list. All right, so that's Ventolin. Now, what else do you need to know about Ventolin? Ventolin is albuterol, albuterol. Now, way back in the day, shows my age, the recommended dose for albuterol was two puffs four times a day, whether you needed it or not. You took it before you got symptoms. Well, there are too many deaths, a lot of deaths. And so now they've changed it to two puffs twice a day. And so um, the deaths from Ventolin were a huge problem. They downgrade the dose. There are still problems, issues with that. Basically, we're talking about arrhythmias and heart attacks. Um, Then we have Adverdiscus. And as we said, Adverdiscus causes underactive thyroid just feeds into the number two drug up there on the list. Very, very interesting. And this is just for 2013. So ad, so uh, um is an inhaled... It's very interesting. It's a pill they put in the disc. And you squeeze it, the disc rotates, disintegrates the pill, and puffs all the powder into the person's lungs. Yeah, it can't possibly be healthy, actually. I mean, when you realize that the underlying cause of asthma is particulate matter in the lungs... Putting more particulate matter in the lungs as a method of therapy, you have to scratch your head about that. Okay, so that's Advir Discus, which, uh, again, feeds into our top number one, uh, I'm sorry, our number two drug on the list. So what do you do instead of this Ventolin Advir stuff? Actually, there's all kinds of choices, but, um, again, nothing beats checking out that diet and getting rid of everything that could possibly be bothering your asthma. First thing you do is get rid of the milk. That's important because milk is such an inflammatory thing, and most people who eat it eat a lot of it. They're eating milk, they're eating cheese, they're eating ice cream, heavy cream. They're eating it in all kinds of different forms. So just evict it in every single one of its forms. Then you're going to get a diminution or a decrease in your symptoms. And at that point, you could then focus. Uh, okay, I ate this, then I couldn't breathe. And again, eliminating the foods that are causing me to not breathe. And by the way, it eliminate anything that has an ingredients list because the second and third ingredients are probably aggravating the problem. So the dietary um, thing is the way to go. Next thing, um, I found high-dose vitamin C. My idea of high-dose vitamin C is 10 to 15 grams a day or whatever it takes to cause diarrhea. That's as high as I would go. Um, the other thing is um, chia seed or flaxseed, whichever one you tolerate better, because that's high omega-3 fats. It's going to repair those membranes in your lungs and give you some better breathing there. So, um, one, two, three, four, five, six. So those are the top six, um, the top six drugs there. And then the next one, of course, is Vivanase, which is an ADHD medication. Um, and we all know that there is no um, laboratory test to diagnose ADHD. So this is a very unscientific diagnosis. And again, because there is no test for it, the ability to give the drug is limited only by the ability of the drug company through advertising or through bribing the physician or educating the physician and educating the patient to get them both to agree to take it. And so there, there is no um, scientific or objective evidence which can verify whether or not Vibonase is or is not needed. And so this is a total, um, as they say, woo-woo drug. There's, there's not a scientific basis for prescribing it. There's not a scientific basis for stopping it. Not a scientific basis for knowing if the dose is too high or too low. Nothing. You just say, "Here it is. Take it." Uh, Lyrica, another uh, psychiatric drug. Same thing. Uh, there is no objective measure. So this is, if you have a Lyrica prescription, it is totally a non-scientific maneuver between you and your witch doctor, or you and your um, spiritual leader. In other words, you may think this is a doctor you're dealing with, but this is not an objective relationship. This is simply you believing another person and doing something because they say so. And it's them saying so because it's the style of the day. It's the, it's the fashion. And so taking vibonates for any condition is not as valid as what skirt length to wear based on the fashion of the, the year. Now, how do we know this? Well, to look back to 2010. and Ace was not in the top 10 in 2010. Let's go back to 2003. Oh, Vibon Ace wasn't there then either. Oh, well. So, what we have here is um, a fashion statement. Okay, then we have next is Lyrica, Uh, another emotional. drug, which is whose prescription, whose ingestion whose purchase is totally based upon the beliefs of the patient and the beliefs of the prescriber period. There is no objectivity, there's no objective blood test, nothing that's going to reveal um, if indeed this is the correct drug for the patient, if indeed the person has a particular condition and what dose of the drug is appropriate for that patient. So there's no objective way of determining this. Again, we definitely have left or departed from the field of science and objectivity. So what we have going on then, let's just recap, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. All right, number ten. Oh, number nine. Number nine is Spireva Handheld Inhaler. This is a, um, an asthma drug. And if you look into Spireva, um Spireva, even though it is, is an asthma drug, I'm calling it asthma, but actually it's an emphysema drug. And nine million prescriptions were written in uh, 2012 and 2014. And this is, uh, a drug with very narrow um, indications, and so it's 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 indicated for people who have lung damage due to heavy smoking, blah blah blah, but then it's actually prescribed for a much wider um, group of people. And again, we have a drug that has no objective test indicating if it's needed um, indicating what the optimal dose is. and so, we have a, uh, a face-based situation here. Now finally, Number 10 is Diavon. Diavon is a diabetic. I'm sorry, is a high blood pressure medicine. Yay! You can measure a blood pressure and you can tell. Does the person have hypertension? Yes, the blood pressure is up. You can tell is Diavon working? Did it lower the blood pressure? Oops, it didn't. Or yes, it did. So it's not until we get to drug number 10 that we have a, uh, a drug that's totally objective-based. I just want to say um, number one, two, three, four, five, six. Number six is Lantus. Now, Lantus is insulin. And although the prescription of Lantus is based on an elevated blood sugar, which would be diabetes, where is the scientific basis that Lantus is effective in terms of saving people's lives? Well, let's take a look at what the Lantus people themselves say. The most common side effect of insulin, including Lantus, is low blood sugar hypoglycemia, which may be serious. Well, let's find out what serious means. Some people may experience symptoms such as shaking, Flooding, fast heartbeat, blurred vision. All right, well, that sounds inconvenient, but not that serious. Severe hypoglycemia may be serious and life-threatening. Well, well, well wait a minute. What is life-threatening? Let's, let's break it down, life-threatening. It means it may cause death. So we have here death is a side effect. Okay, got it. It may cause harm to your heart or brain. What does that mean? It means you can have a heart attack or stroke, or better yet, you could just get stupid. So once your blood sugar goes very, very low, you can actually have irreversible brain damage. And this is the most common side effect. This is not a rare side effect. This is not something that might happen. This is a common side effect. Okay. So um, if you have someone who's diabetic... We have drug number seven here, Lantus, which by its own admission, the most common side effect can lead to brain damage or death. This is... As my 11th grade English teacher would say, I'm stultified. That's a fancy word for I've been brought to a mental standstill. I mean, I almost don't even know what to say about this. So let's just say you're you're chicken. Let's just say that suffering from a common, not common, but most common side effect that could give you a heart attack or leave you retarded, and I do mean retarded, doesn't really appeal to you, and you're just not that brave or courageous. And let's just say... Self-discipline is not your strong suit. You've heard about all these amazing diets that get rid of insulin, get rid of diabetes, and quite frankly, you don't feel like sticking to any of them. All right, I got it. I feel you. Just drink water. Drink water. Yeah, that's your body's way of dumping all of your excess sugar. Drink water. How much water? Again, this is not medical advice. I may be a doctor, but I'm not licensed. And also, you can also uh, get unlicensed uh, guidance with... Uh, Discovery sessions. You can go to vitalitycouncils.com. Check that out. So drink water. And everyone's heard that, that, you know, formula of one quart of water per 50 pounds of body weight. Okay, right. Well, do the math. Do the math for your weight. And you're going to come up with a number. Whatever your number is, add one quart to that. And that's how much water you should drink in a day. And you will literally piss out your sugar, which is a much healthier way to go. Also, many people who have diabetes have taken water pills or are taking water pills. Water pills cause diabetes. Surprise, surprise. So water pills cause diabetes, why? Through dehydration and the effect on the kidneys. So if you're too chicken to take insulin, and your lack of discipline to pursue a drastic dietary change, then just increase your water. Now, another piece of research, which might interest those of you who are diabetic or near diabetic or whatever, is they have found that the optimal hemoglobin A1c is 7.5. When you go over that, death increases. When you go under that, death increases. So I call it a J-curve. So It comes down and up and so the optimal point in terms of the lowest mortality occurred at a hemoglobin A1C of 7.5. Well, duh, what blood sugar does that correspond to? More or less, that's as we say here in Panama, masaminos. Everything here is masaminos, by the way. Ask what time it is. Oh, masaminos, more or less, about, approximately, maybe, close to. You never get a precise answer in anything. But you can't get too excited about things, so... More or less, it's 135. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The cutoff is 125. So everyone with a blood sugar over 125 should be on drugs. Well, why would you treat a blood sugar under 135 if you know that death increases dramatically when the blood sugar or when the hemoglobin A1C is more or less than this amount? I don't know because I don't make the rule. I don't know. I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you is that if you're accepting therapy for diabetes and your hemoglobin A1C is anything other than 7.5, then you've got a situation where you're actually increasing your chances of dropping dead. There you go. And again, low blood sugar is not a side effect. It's not a common side effect. It is the most common side effect of this drug. Again, this is the manufacturer. This is in their own words, you know, from their own literature. So there we have the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Top 10 drugs of 2013-2014, of those top 10 drugs, we only have... The blood pressure one. That's it. Well, blood pressure one and the sensory one both have objective tests to indicate that the drug is needed. Now, I'm not going to include Lantis as a scientific solution because, by their own admission, um, it does carry with it a fair amount of death and mortality, and so we're not. It's not really clear that anyone's living any longer as a result of this particular drug or. You know, benefiting at all. But that that that's a, that's a pretty, you know, pretty dangerous, heady thing there. Now, in their defense, though, um, you can pretty much die as any of these top, top ten drugs. They can all cause death. And again, when you have death being caused by drugs that are prescribed on a whim, not not an objective lab test, no evidence um, that the person has a condition for which the drug is warranted. And then, on top of that, you have a situation where even if the drug test does show the drug is warranted, according to the standard of care, there's no evidence of benefit to the person taking the drug. So this is very, very dicey. And looking at the top 10 drugs really is an, a clear view into how 880,000 people every year could die as a result, and do die, and are murdered. As we go to properly prescribed medication. And you have doctors looking at this list saying, oh my God, shouldn't I be prescribing something on this list? So let's take a, <laughs> let's take a look at uh, questions. So get questions, you click your button there and I'll answer them. And we're going to go patrol the chat room here and see if we have questions in the chat room. All right, let's, let's scoot up here and see if we can find any questions. Oh my gosh. So flax seeds are now genetically modified, just a piece of information for chat mm-hmm. Okay, so someone in the chat room says, I found, no, uh, I found albedo actually causes asthma attacks. That is the case with many um, drugs. They often cause the very conditions that they are supposedly designed to alleviate. And so that uh, that that is definitely a common situation. And it's simply a matter of creating your own market, basically. Okay, so we have a lot of people in the chat room who love their milk. <laughs> and, um, okay, so one person said I had to drop all dairy. Another person says um, I've cut down tremendously. So the, uh, I think the problem with, with dairy is something called cognitive dissonance. It that means that, that people drink the stuff it causes problems. They realize it causes problems. But then they hear all this incredibly awesome positive stuff about dairy, And so there's a, a, a disconnect between what you hear in terms of PR and, and words and stuff and what you actually experience when you eat the substance. And when advertising is really super, super effective, then You can eat something, and the emotional charge you get from eating it is so great that you discount, ignore, or don't even perceive the very real negative effect of it. And this is really, especially uh, I've observed with milk and with yogurt, yogurt especially. I had one patient who was, uh, she was asthmatic, but she used an inhaler every now and then. She was happy with that, but what she was not happy with was her crushing debilitating devastating headaches and so she heard I was a good doctor and a natural doctor so she came to see me about these headaches and so I went over everything and she was eating took a look I said you know what I really think it's your yogurt what she said and she recited to me every last benefit of yogurt and why she was taking yogurt and why she's going to contribute it continued to eat it I said well look tell you what why don't you just stop it for three days? Just three days. Stop the yogurt for three days. The good bacteria won't all go away. Stop for three days. See what happens. And then if you want to go back on it, go back on it. She says, All right, I can do that. I'm not giving up my yogurt. So, okay, got it. No problem. So she comes back to see me, I guess about oh, three weeks later. I said, Well, how's it going? She says, My headaches are gone. I said, Wow, that's great. How'd you do that? He says, Well, I stopped the yogurt for three days and they went away. I said, Yeah. And then you went back on the yogurt. She says, Are you crazy? No, I didn't go back on that yogurt. <laughs> I thought she was so devoted to the yogurt that she was even willing to tolerate the headaches. But again, I, I think the, the, the milk addicts uh, out there, you just have to separate your experience from um, the marketing stuff, and that makes it a lot easier. We oh, got a lot of questions here. All right. We have a question. Hi, you're on the air. Yes, I have a question about the, the with the asthma. What type of vitamin C do you recommend? Plano ascorbic acid. With the asthma, Nothing fancy. fancy. I mean, a lot of people would buy me C. is all this expensive stuff out there, and everyone says, hey, you know, should I get the the C with the flavonoids and the rootin' and the arceola and the rose hips, and I just haven't noticed any increased uh, difference. Okay, lots of questions here. Due to that, I have gotten off everything I was on except insulin. <laughs> so now they're gonna work on insulin, good job. Does it matter if it's raw milk? Um, I've noticed that people have issues with raw milk, allergies and rashes as well. Oh, but my doctor just put me on Lantus. I think 10 exclamation marks. Okay, so they're gonna work on So what is the alternative to the event uh, discovery session? We've only got 90 seconds. So go to VitalityCapsules.com and click Discovery Session. I was on the pump with, okay, he he was on the the pump, I'm sure, with with this um, insulin agent. Yeah, the pump is treacherous. It can really overdose you. Is mild hypoglycemia a serious concern? uh, No, it's not a serious concern. It is a concern. Usually the um, workaround is to even if the processed foods are from the health food store. Can you stop insulin cold turkey with drastic dietary change? Answer yes. Can the kidneys handle that high sugar? Well, if you have the drastic dietary change, the sugar can go down to normal as quickly as a a week. You know, it's, it's amazing. All right, next week, when is a house not a home? Tune in. Think happens. Think happens. All right, we'll see you next week.